0: Amen. Good morning. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. If you want to find that in your copy of the scripture, we're going to be in Ephesians <clears throat> excuse me, 6, 14 through 17. We've been in the book of Ephesians since September of 1963. And uh, actually, next week is the last, uh, last message in, in uh, Ephesians. We're going to conclude the book next week. If you're wondering, in this summer, if you'd like to, be, uh, to get ahead in your reading, We're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount for the summer months, so you might want to be jumping into that. That'll be uh, exciting. So, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, 14 through 17, and really, uh, my introduction is is kind of dull this morning. I want to set the standards real low for you. So, Uh, last week's message was really part one of this week's message, which is part two Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, and really telling us as believers we need to stand. We need to stand. In fact, that was the title of the message last week, for those of you who were here. The title of the message was Stand. And so this week, we're going to continue in that regard, and the title of the message is this, Equipped to Stand. No, we're just keeping it real basic, real simple, isn't it? All right. Um, How in the world, if the enemy, the devil, is seeking on the day of evil... To destroy us and everything about us, how in the world do we have any chance of standing in that day against this one? And the answer the Bible gives us, of course, is Christ, and we need to understand how to be equipped to stand. Look at verse 14, Ephesians chapter 6, first two words in the ESV anyway, anyway, which is what I'm reading, stand therefore, stand therefore with this in mind, and in this manner, stand. Don't stand in any way. Stand in this way, and he's about to tell us what it means to be equipped to stand, to be able to have uh, maintain our ground even when the enemy, with all of his weapons, with all of his evil, seeks to come and destroy. And there are six uh, equipment, piece of equipment that he wants us. Uh, to be equipped with. We're going to go through each of them in turn and hopefully draw out uh, from the Scripture what he's calling us to do. So stand equipped. Equipped to stand, first of all, in truth and in righteousness. Now he describes a soldier's armor here. We often don't see soldiers in armor as he's describing, but for the soldiers of that time period, this armor was essential to go into battle without this armor Would be one way of getting out of the battle early on a stretcher if they even bothered to carry you off the armor was essential if you're going to have any success as a soldier at at the very least if you had any hope of surviving as a soldier and the author god himself through the apostle paul wants us to have in mind the significance and importance of these things meaning These things ought to be as important to us as believers as these items would be to a soldier on the battlefield. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Stand in this manner in truth and in righteousness. The belt of truth, a kind of a girdle item that would be worn around the waist both to uh, maintain uh, uh, structure for the rest of the armor as well as maybe to hang on various implements the soldier would carry. And the author is telling us we must go into battle with truth and we must go into battle with righteousness. Look what the Bible says in Second Timothy chapter 2. This is kind of interesting about soldiers and being equipped. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 4 or 5. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So he tells him, I want you to communicate the truth of the gospel to those others who would hear it and receive it. I want you to communicate the truth of what Christ has done to others that they would receive it and also pass it on. Share in the suffering of others as a good soldier. Why would he, uh, Timothy here be sharing in the suffering of others? And because he's sharing the gospel and it's going to be opposed. He says, go into battle with the truth of the gospel and be prepared to be opposed Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus, verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Just like an athlete is not crowned unless he follows the rules, and the hard-working farmer is the one who shares in the crops. So he's saying this, as a good soldier... Go into battle with the truth of the gospel, and don't be entangled in civilian pursuits. Maintain the truthfulness of your calling as a soldier. You don't put on the, the belt of truth and then bother with other matters. You don't put on the belt of truth and then say, well, who wants to go play golf? Now, nothing against golf. Simmer down. It's just an example. I saw a couple of people getting ready to leave. He's saying this, don't... Entanglements is not what a soldier is looking at. The soldier is going to operate based on his relationship with his commanding officer, in this case with God. And his uh, work for his commanding officer is going to be based on the truth of the gospel only. Jesus said when he left, go and be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He is saying, I want you to be about my business in this world until I should return to the exclusion of all other things. And we say, what is that? And he says, it's the truth of the gospel. Go and be my witnesses. Share with others that Christ is risen. Tell them that you can be saved from your sin. You can receive forgiveness because Christ died on the cross for you. This is the truth we hold. This is the truth which is our hope and it, it's this truth, fastened about our waist, that tells us, where am I going? Listen to what the prophet says over in Isaiah chapter 11. And it's hard to imagine that the author did not have this uh, verse in mind when he was writing Ephesians 6. This is what it says in Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse... And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Okay, catch up. Who's Jesse? He's the dad of who? David. And David was the dad of a whole bunch of people, but then Jesus, right? So Isaiah 11:1, he's saying, There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is we understand, or I would understand it anyway, to be Christ. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, excuse me, Um, I lost, there it is, verse 2, "'The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, "'his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. "'He shall not judge by what his eyes see "'or decide disputes by what his ears hear, "'but with righteousness. "'He will judge the poor "'and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. "'He will strike the whole earth with the rod of his mouth.' And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wickedness. And listen, here it is. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Again, truth and righteousness were front and center on this one who is going to come. What we're going to discover as we walk through the armor of God is the armor of God is really Christ himself. When we put on the belt of truth, we're saying, I am putting on the truth of Christ. Not any truth. The truth of Christ, that Christ has come to save sinners, and He has, in fact, saved me, also a sinner. We are putting on Christ's truth, and we are putting on Christ's righteousness. We have to understand the truth of what the Bible tells us about Christ. We have to understand it, and we have to believe it. We have to understand that the Bible is, in fact, true, and the Bible is, in fact, authoritative, The Bible tells us everything God wants us to know about who God is and what He is doing in the world around us. The Bible doesn't contain every truth that's ever been written, but everything that's in the Bible is true. I think it was John who said this, if we were to write down all of the things that Jesus had accomplished, you remember what he said? It would take like three terabyte external hard drives, I think is what he said. He said, I don't think that all the books of the world could contain them. So what he is saying, he's saying, uh, we couldn't possibly write down everything there is to know about God, but everything God wants us to know about God is in the Bible, and it is true, and we should seek out the truth of who Christ is in His Word. Breastplate of righteousness. What does the breastplate of righteousness look like if it's Christ's righteousness? We have to think about Christ's righteousness. How often did Christ sin? Never. Christ never once sinned. Not only that, how often was Christ obedient? Always. He never did that which he shouldn't have done. He always did everything that should have been done. It gets worse for us in terms of comparing with our lives. Are you ready? You've heard this before. Not only did he do everything he was told to do, he did it precisely when God wanted him to do it. How often have we been obedient 10 years too late? Not for Jesus ever. Always the moment that obedience was called for, he obeyed. He always obeyed precisely as the Father intended and he never omitted one thing the Father wanted him to do and everything was done precisely as he meant to and he wants us to wear that righteousness as our breastplate. He wants us to wear on ourselves the perfection of his righteousness. He wants us to walk against the devil as those who wear on ourselves the flawlessness of the life of Christ. This will become important in a minute, but let's look at two ways this is important for now. Number one, what about truth that we need to think about in our own personal lives? Look at John fourteen six with me. I'm going to point this out just because this is becoming terribly unpopular today, and this is the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth, and for some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, this is going to bother us a bit, but like I always say, it's the Bible, so you can take it up with God. John 14, 6, it's a verse you've memorized a million times, but the question is today, do we really believe it? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the truth. How do you get to God? Through Jesus. There's no other way. All roads don't go to heaven. These roads aren't a variety of roads just going up the same mountain. The road through Jesus goes to heaven. The rest don't. This has nothing to do with good intentions. This has nothing to do with uh, a person's heart. This has everything to do with, do you believe Jesus is God raised from the dead? And if one doesn't, you will not find the Father. Now, maybe in this particular room, this doesn't bother you. I would suggest it does a little Because you have friends and neighbors who aren't Christians and you want them to know the Father. You want them to be in heaven with you, right? It would maybe be a little bit easier if you could just say, well, you know what, they're very generous. They're very generous and so therefore I'm sure they're going to find their way home someday. And Jesus tells us the truth here. There's only one way. Your goodness will not get you to heaven. Buddha will not get you to heaven. Good karma will not get you to heaven. Good karma won't get the line to go faster at the grocery store, much less gets you to heaven. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There is no other way to have peace with God except through the forgiveness of Christ himself. He is the only one who made a way for sinners. He is the only one who had the ability to make a way for sinners through his own sacrifice, and frankly, he is the only one who cared enough to do so. All these others who might seem to provide a way do not care for us the way Christ does. He is the way he is the truth. He is the life. All other ways which would claim to go to God are damned. I don't know another way to say that to leave the mark that Jesus intended to leave. If you believe there are other ways to heaven and Jesus in the Bible has offended you, then you read it Right? And we must understand, believers, we have to stand on this truth, and in the coming days, this will not get easier, it will get harder. We don't have time for that now. That would be getting entangled in civilian matters. Okay, truth. Jesus is the only way to God. Okay, let's just touch, just something, and this gets me in trouble when I go off script. You're welcome. Um... It is also, Christ is the only way to God for us as believers. Here's what we think. Okay, I get to heaven through Jesus, and I get God to be nice to me as a believer by being a really good believer. That's terrible. Who wants to live that way? I've had a bad day this week. I know, I know. That's how bad a day it was. It felt like a whole week. Obviously, I did something naughty, and God is just hitting me upside the head. So you think as a believer that the way to get God to see things your way is to try and be a, a good person. N- number one, the worst thing that could happen to you is for you to get things your way. Secondly, no one cares more deeply for what you're going through than God Himself. And you cannot behave yourself into a good relationship with the Father. It's already as good as it's gonna get. What else do you want? He died for you, He wants you to enjoy His presence even today. You don't have to impress him. Besides that, i got to be honest with you, you're not that impressive. It's just because you're human. Okay, that's the truth. Jesus is the only way for us, even as believers. You want to enjoy the warmth of God today as a believer? Jesus provides it. All right, let's look at righteousness. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14. First <clears throat> Peter chapter 1, verse 14. knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but you are ransomed with the blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. So what is Peter saying here? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why do we have the right to put on the breastplate of righteousness? Because Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, shed his blood to deliver us from all of our sinful deeds. And so Peter is now saying, wearing this breastplate of righteousness, be holy. Live as one who has been made righteous. It is a mistake to think as Christians I've been made righteous, so therefore I can do whatever I want. And God's cool with it. And Peter is saying, no, 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 you misunderstood. The spotless lamb of God shed his blood so you could put on righteousness And now our calling as believers is to live obedient as those who have been made righteous. If you want to do whatever you want, you must ask yourself this question. Why in the world did you want that breastplate? If you had no desire whatsoever to be freed from your old way of living, why in the world would you want to put on a breastplate of righteousness? That's that's exactly what Peter is asking. You might think of it this way. Would you like to be identified as a Nazi? I woke you up there in a minute. You didn't see that one coming. You said, well, of course not. You'd better say, of course not. Okay, but it's no big deal, but you certainly wouldn't mind wearing a T-shirt with a swastika on it, right? I mean, you're not a Nazi. You just have a T-shirt with a swastika on it, right? I mean, it's just a cool shape, right? No, it doesn't fly, does it? And Peter is saying, it also doesn't make any sense. Why are you wearing a breastplate of righteousness and then saying, I can live however I want? He's saying, no, as children of one who has made us righteous, we should be driven by love and worship to say, I want to be righteous. I want to leave behind the passions of my flesh. I want to leave behind the disobedience of my past. And now I want to live in the righteous calling God has put before me. He has declared us righteous that we might live righteous. We've covered this earlier in Ephesians chapter 5 already, so I'm going to read it briefly. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. How does an unwise person walk? I'm a believer, so God's not worried about my sin. I can do whatever I want. That's not real wise. Number six, Verse 16, Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Two options, understand what the will of the Lord is and foolishness. Those are your two options. Either you're a fool or you understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? Do not get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He's saying this, instead of being controlled by the desires of our flesh, in this case, drunkenness and adultery or lust, instead of wanting to be controlled by that, instead be controlled by the Spirit. The fool says, I want to do what I want. I've always said this about sin. The tricky part about sin is that it's fun. They call it temptation because it's temptation to do something you actually want to do. I think one of the funniest, and I actually think it's a complete fabrication, this notion. Why I stumbled into sin? Oh, really? Don't buy it. You mean you ran headlong down to do something you wanted to do with the anticipation you wouldn't get busted. That's what it is. Stumbled. Yeah, you stumbled a little bit, meaning you were running, so, running toward it so fast. Anyway, he said... The fool says, it's what I want. But the one who has been made wise by the will of the Lord says, wait a second, there's something better than pursuing the desires of my flesh. It's being controlled by the desires of God himself by his spirit, a life of righteousness, a life of walking in God's ways, equipped to stand. Number one, belt of truth around our waist, and secondly, the breastplate of righteousness in place. We need to keep going on, otherwise we won't get done uh, before lunch, right? Look with me again at Ephesians 6, 15 and 16. I apologize for my voice. I'm getting off a bit of a cold this week. And uh, I also can't hear anything, so I don't know if you're involved or not. You could actually be talking to one another right now. I'd have no idea. Have your feet Have your feet with shoes. Have shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Equipped to stand with readiness and with faith. Equipped to stand with readiness and with faith. Do you remember that old movie Hoosiers? Old basketball movie, one of the best sports movies ever made. Um, I think Nacho Libre was number two. <laughs> I do that to see if they've seen it, and they have, so you've seen Nacho Libre, okay. Okay, that's not the second best sports movie of all time. 42 would be the second best sports movie of all time. Okay, um, Hoosiers, they, they, you know this story. Small town, Indiana, basketball team, but they make it to the state championship. So they get to the state championship, this huge arena where they're going to have to play. And Do you remember what the coach does with the team in this huge arena? He walks them into the arena and he gets out a measuring tape and he measures the height of the basketball hoop. What, how, how, how tall was it? 40 feet. No, it was 10 feet, regulation height. He measured from the baseline to the free throw line, regulation. He measured the, all the dimensions of the court. He said, guys, it's basketball court. There is nothing different here. This is the same court we play in in small town indiana you are ready you have to believe what's true here to understand that you are ready for this you're getting ready to stand up against the devil in an evil day if that day isn't today for you that day will come i promise are you ready the bible says we need to have a readiness established all the way down to our toes. Are we ready? I'll give you this. The devil knows that one thing. That one thing that you don't want to talk about. That one thing it's completely hidden. It might be a present reality in your life that you don't know what to do with it. It might be a long, long ago thing. And when you think of it, it generates all kinds of shame And guilt, and you say, if ever anybody ever found out, my reputation would be ruined. The devil knows all about it. He probably knows more about it than you do. How could you possibly be ready to face an enemy that has that information? What does the gospel say about that? The gospel says you're you're not looking at what's true. What is true about me is not defined by that which I can be accused with. What is true about me is defined by what Christ has done. I have to be equipped down to my toes with the readiness of the gospel which says this, in Christ all of my shame was hung on a cross. Look at the cross in the word, look at the cross even in your own mind and tell me, is there any more shame for you to bear for that misdeed? Or that series of misdeeds? Or those misdeeds you have planned on your calendar for this week? Is there any way that you could possibly bear more shame than what Christ has done for you? And Satan comes to you and he says in your ear, you are not a good person. You are shameful. And what does the gospel tell about us? It looks at us. Looks at the cross, says, you're as righteous as Christ. There is no shame in you because the work of the Lamb is completely done. Readiness in the gospel means I can stand before the enemy and his accusations have no landing place because the gospel tells me what's true of me, not my shameful past. In Christ, all of that was handled at the cross, Certainly, the author had Isaiah 52 in mind when he wrote this. these verses. Listen to Isaiah 52:7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful are the feet of Him who took a cross up the hill for us and hung on that cross, so that all of our history of shame and guilt and sin, it's gone. The readiness of the gospel is appropriating in my own life the truth what Jesus says about me. There is no more shame for me to carry. There is no more sin to pay for. He has atoned for all of it. Maybe I could put it this way we have to understand the devil's job is not primarily to get you to do something bad. You think about it. The devil's job is not primarily to get you to do something bad. The devil's job is primarily to get you to believe you are bad. Because then you would just simply say, well, I'm bad. May as well do bad things. And the gospel readies us to say, wait a minute, I have been redefined not by my deeds but by my savior another pastor ray ortland says it this way the mistake christians make is thinking that the christian life is about avoiding sin that's not what the christian life is about stay with me the christian life is about the truth we have found christ he has made us new and he welcomes us into friendship and loving relationship The the theme of the Christian life is I get Christ. The theme of the Christian life is how do I make sure I don't do anything naughty? If I spend the balance of my Christian life trying to avoid sin, what will I spend my whole Christian life thinking about? Sin. What Christ has done is saying, I have atoned for that. Now you can spend the balance of your Christian life thinking about Christ. Christ. Now, i got to be honest with you about something. For most of us, that sounds lame. And I don't mean that in a sacrilegious way. It's just we have no idea how good that is. Let me put it this way. and It's silly, and so forgive me. Or don't. It's your call. If heaven were a cardboard box, I mean a big one, one of the refrigerator ones. Used to build some killer forts out of those. Anyway, if heaven were a cardboard box... If Christ were there, you'd be okay with it. If heaven was nothing other than a cardboard box and you were going to hang out in the box with Jesus for all of eternity, when you got there, you would still say, yes! But see, the problem is we think Jesus is okay. But I have a lot of other really good things going in my life. And so what I'm hoping is Jesus will actually add a little bit of significance and importance to the other really good things in my life. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, but I'm way better than all of your whole life. The the Christian life we lead is a life where we get to hang out with Christ. We get to wear the breastplate of righteousness and spend our whole life enjoying relationship with them. Another author said this about the inverse. His name is Richard Wormbrand. I may be pronouncing his name incorrectly. He wrote, Tortured for Christ. If you've read it, founded Voice of the Martyrs. He was in jail in a Romanian prison for 14 years. That's really bad. He discovered that his torturers, his tormentors, had uh, intentionally left room for Satan to do his work through them. And he says this, what he learned from his torturers. He said, I learned this from them as they have allowed no place for Jesus in their hearts, I decided I would not leave the smallest place for Satan in mine. And so this was him saying, you know what, My, my job here is to know Christ and Him crucified, to enjoy His presence for all of the days He gives me, to trust what the gospel says is true about me, in christ and so what does he then say the author of ephesians take up the shield of faith with which we extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one now the roman shield was a full body deal well oftentimes before battle they would dip it in water because the uh enemy would shoot arrows they'd dip them in pitch or tar or um, diesel fuel i think and uh they didn't have diesel fuel back then okay and they would shoot them, and getting shot by an arrow is bad, and getting shot by an arrow that has a fire on it is worse. And so the idea is this shield would, would stop these flaming arrows. It's better to get a flaming arrow and a wet shield than a, a body. I mean, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> and he's saying, hold up your shield and stop the enemy's flaming darts. What are the darts of the enemy? Well, my favorite verse for this is the first two chapters of Job. God says to the, to the devil, look at Job. He's doing a great job. And Job goes, oh, really? And immediately he accuses Job before the father. That's all Satan does. He accuses us over and over and over. Fire dart after fire dart. You're not a good husband. You're not a good wife. You're not very obedient. You're lazy. You're lustful. You're, you're, you're a drunk If the people in this church you knew what they were you were thinking, they wouldn't even let you in the front door. These darts over and over and over again. So what what do we do to combat these darts? Well, typically what we do is we try to be really well behaved. You know, the best thing I can do to keep the enemy from accusing me is to make sure he has no evidence, right? So we work really hard. I'm not gonna do anything bad. How'd that go? I made it a whole, I don't know, what's your record? Ten minutes? I don't know. Maybe you made it a week, that big killer sin. You, you said, you know what, I'm going to be okay with the, with the PG-rated sins, but the R1s are out of the window, for, and you made it a whole week. And at the end of the week, did you feel vindicated? Did you feel like a good Christian? No, he doesn't let us off the hook. The way in which we combat the accusations of the devil is with faith that says, no, Jesus took care of that. I'm righteous in Christ. There is no accusation that will stand. The son of the father stands at his right hand and forever makes intercession for us. Do you believe that what Christ says about you is true? Jesus says you're righteous in him. Jesus says you stand in the presence of the Father with him. Jesus says when you come to him in prayer, he hears you. Jesus says that he looks at you with love and devotion and affection. Do you believe those things? Okay, the guys aren't going to like this one, but, so I'll ask it anyway. Stay with me, fellows. Do you feel those things? Do you feel the affection of Christ? If you're not sure what that looks like, read the Psalms. And for the record, that guy was a soldier. He was not a wuss. And he talks about wanting to experience the closeness and embrace of the Father. And Jesus says, This is what is true of you. I have brought you into my presence. You are righteous. There is no accusation that can stand. And you say to him, No, but but Christ, you got to understand, I actually did it. So the accusation does stand, right? And, and, and Jesus says, I'm sorry, you misunderstood. I, I went on the cross for that. I paid for it. It's done. It's finished. You want to be ready to stand in the evil day? Know what Jesus says is true about you and believe it. Know what the gospel says is true about you and believe it with all of your heart. One last question on this, and then we'll go to the, uh, the last two bits of clothing. Ever had something really bad happen to you? You're like, yeah, thanks for bringing it up. And then you have this thought. You immediately think of that one bad thing you did. You say, ah, he's getting me. I knew it. I, man, I knew as soon as I did it, he would get me. And boy, did he! Boy, you got his pound of flesh. You ever thought, have you ever thought that? said, well, you know, God, you're right. No, I was wrong. You got me. Take what you got. You know, we have to understand the gospel that is not true. That would be a lie. God put all of the punishment for our misdeeds on Christ himself. Anything that he might bring into our life is a loving act of him to draw us closer to himself. But the punishment for our sin is done. You want to be ready to stand in the evil day. Know the gospel and believe it with all of your heart. All right, look at verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 6. Again, starting in the middle of the sentence. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Equipped to stand. Salvation and the Word of God. Salvation and the Word of God. And the word of God. Now, if you're watching a football game, I know if you notice this in the NFL, when they're on the sidelines, it's very unusual for the football players to have their helmets on. Have you noticed that? When they're on sidelines, yeah, they generally don't. Some of the players keep their helmets on, but generally they take their helmets off. And even on the sidelines, they have these fancy things, they put the helmets on. Have you seen those? So if you're playing in Green Bay, you'll you'll put it on these little stands. And you know what those things do? They keep the helmet warm that's handy, keep the helmet warm. Reminds me of a story, this has nothing to do with anything, but I'm going to tell it to you. Uh, it was snowmobiling with a friend of mine up in Alaska, <clears throat> and uh, we went around, we were up there for several days uh, near Fairbanks, so it was kind of cool, it was February. Um, so then after we'd done this two-day snowmobile trip, and then we were in Fairbanks, so and we were looking to buy a gift for our host uh, on the trip, we went into the, the snowmobile store, and, and of course in Alaska they call them snow machines, and uh, we were looking at these fancy snow machines. I said, hey, hey, Mark, look at this uh, knob on this m- machine. Mine had one just like it. What's, he, what's that do? He goes, that's the handlebar warmer? You weren't using that? I said, no, my hands were freezing to death. He said, no, you don't understand. I had to keep turning mine off. My hands were getting too hot. Information that would have been useful three days ago. Again, I told you, I had nothing to do with this. Football players, they wear their helmets on the field, off the field. The helmet, they don't need the helmet on. And what he's saying is here, I want you to take up your helmet, the helmet of salvation, and you need to have this on because this is a way of understanding you need to get in the game. To be a Christian is not to be on the sidelines. There is no sidelines in the life of a Christian. And he's saying, Take the helmet of salvation, the most important piece of the armor, affix it around your head because it is your life. The salvation we have received by faith through the work of Christ is what keeps us alive. It's impenetrable. It is certain victory. It is the confidence of knowing that death cannot occur. You're going into battle with a helmet that promises you you, you will not die. The enemy cannot defeat you. Jesus on the cross on, in John 19, 30 said this, it is finished. His work to bring our salvation was completed. Everything that could cause harm to those who were in Christ was ended. Sin, death, done. It's finished. And he's saying, put on the helmet of salvation that says, it's finished. Again, the author was reaching back to Isaiah as he wrote these verses, and this likely came from Isaiah chapter 29 <clears throat> verse 5. This is what Isaiah 29 verse 5 says. The multitude, <clears throat> excuse me. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be, be like small dust and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. So you stand before the great host of the enemy with all of his flaming darts. You put on the helmet of salvation, and the enemy is done. Like so much chaff, like a strong wind comes through, and the dust is stirred and moves away. The Lord visits in a thunder and in an earthquake and in the whirlwind with fire and with noise, and and we wear the helmet of salvation, trusting this one who will defeat excuse me, all of his enemies. Should have left out the snowmobile story so I could finish. All right. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I just want to quickly reference half a dozen verses here. You don't turn to them. I'm just going to touch on them very quickly about the Word of God. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who are we talking about here? Christ. Christ. Hebrews 4, chapter 12, the word of God is sharper than a double edged sword, cutting to the dividing issues of the heart and soul. Revelation 19, 13, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll be fine. Revelation 19, 13, this one who is coming on uh, the white horse with his uh, robe dipped in blood, this savior of ours, Christ, his name will be called the word of God, and from his mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now, what is he going to strike down the nations with? It's judgment that said, I came, I died, I offered salvation. Did you receive it? For those who have received it, he will bring home, and those who haven't will receive judgment. Revelation 19, 21 says this about this great final battle the rest of them were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse second thessalonians 2 8 tells us this when all of the enemies gathered before christ he defeats them with his breath this is the word of god and he's saying take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is it surprising that when Christ was tempted, he understood the truth of God's Word in Deuteronomy when he confronted the devil? No, because he understood the power of the truth of God's Word. That it's the truth of God's Word that tells us who we are. It's the truth of God's Word that tells us how we know Christ and how we have a relationship with the Father. Thank you. Is that water? I'll let you know. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Now, you didn't do a good deed to earn favor with God, right? You just wanted the sermon to end. I got it. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Seth. Equipped to stand. First two things were what? Truth and Righteousness. The truth is, Christ has made us righteous, and I think as every believer in this room has to ask ourselves this question, are you ready to follow him in righteousness? Are you ready to look at those things in your life that you know are just wrong? And say, you know what? Somebody with this breastplate on should not be doing this. Find somebody who knows you, go to them and ask for their prayer and their help, Seek the Lord in his word, and he will give you victory. Are we ready to walk in the footsteps of Christ and say he has made us righteous? It's time to set aside the things of before and live in the righteousness he has given us. Secondly, the readiness of the gospel and the shield of faith. A friend of mine told, said it this way, you can't give away what you don't own. It's really hard to give people the good news of the gospel if you don't think it's good news. If you think the gospel is kind of lame or if you think knowing Christ is not that great. If you think Jesus only forgives uh, basic sins but the really bad ones you're out of luck. you're not going to be able to be ready in the gospel nor will you be able to proclaim the gospel you can't give good news to somebody if it's not good news finally equipped to stand in the salvation of Christ and the word of God where is our hope today <clears throat> where's the hope we have for today it's in Christ alone But you can ask it this way. Another pastor asked this question to identify where our hope is. If blank were to happen, everything would finally be okay. My life would be okay. Everything would be fine. If I could just, this income level, this debt gone, this medical condition gone, pain in my back would go away, right? What happens when the pain in your back goes away? The pain in your shoulder you never noticed. Your back hurts so bad. Or you might say it this way, where is my hope for today? If I were to lose this, my life would be ruined. If I were to lose my job, if I were to lose my health, if I were to lose whatever it is for you, if I were to lose this, my life would be ruined. That's where your hope is. By putting on the helmet of salvation, picking up the word of God, we're saying, my hope is in Christ alone, and I can't lose him. I will always be able to stand in hope. Finally, then, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Now, I've talked about this before, but I'm going to leave us with this before we close in prayer. Actually, Richard Wormbrand said it this way, the author of Tortured for Christ. He said the problem he has with Americans is we are swimming in Bibles. The only way I know how to say this is to quote another theologian as this. Say, Folks, we don't know our Bibles. That is the place where we find out what God says is true of us. That is the place where we find out the hope of the gospel today again. Folks, we have to know our Bibles. Read your Bible. Have it in your truck. Have it on a CD. Stick it in there. You say, well, but the guy's from work right in there. Excellent. But it's in Leviticus right now. Yeah, that'll be weird, but... Go with it. See what happens. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. You're welcome. I'll say this to the fellas. Guys, we've got to read our Bibles. Listen to it. I don't care if you do it on the MP3 or whatever. Buy the records. Can you get Bible on vinyl? That'd be a lot of vinyl. Um, do this for me. You ready? Can you, you ready for a goal? Are you ready? You, you can't tell. 20 minutes a day, five days out of seven. Can you do that? 20 minutes a day, five days out of seven. That'll put you in the top 3% of Bible readers in the United States. So, I don't mean to set the bar, just give me that. 20 minutes a day, five days out of seven, read your Bible. Say, well, I'm a fast reader. Good, you're going to read a lot more. (laughs) Equipped to stand. Truth and righteousness, readiness and faith, salvation in the Word of God.